We are continuing our January sermon series uh, entitled Better because we are trying to do better, aren't we? We're trying to look at our lives and say, how can I make improvements? How can I be better and do better and get better? But we've been talking about, by looking at the book of Ephesians, that our tendency is, when we talk about making spiritual improvements in our life, our tendency is to try to boil down Christianity to a checklist of good things that we should do and bad things that we shouldn't do, right? And we think that being a better follower of Jesus, being a better Christian, living a better Christian life, is simply about trying harder to do the things that we're supposed to do, you know? Go to church, check, read my Bible, check, say my prayers, check, be a nice guy, check. And we think that the more checks we can make on our list, the better we are doing. We've talked about some of the holes in that, some of the the problems with that. And we've discussed and looked at the book of Ephesians, and I hope that we're trying and we're, we're starting to realize that living a better life isn't just about trying harder, it's about seeing clearer. It's about having a better understanding of the gospel. And when we have a better understanding of the gospel, when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened with the truth, well, then a better life is the result, and it comes more naturally. And so that's what we're talking about. And this morning, in order to kind of get our minds thinking, we need to understand that in order to live a better life, we have to have a right understanding about the proper relationship between good works and salvation. All those things that we're thinking, well, those are good things that I'm supposed to do, and I know I'm supposed to do those things, I know I'm supposed to help people, and I'm supposed to give to the poor, and I'm supposed to give to the church, and I'm supposed to attend worship services, and I'm supposed to, uh, all these good things that we know we're supposed to be working on and doing them, what is the relationship between those good works and our salvation? Because our tendency is to think about those good things that we do, that we do them in order to go to heaven when we die, right? Our tendency is to think that if I do really good, I work really hard, then maybe I'll do enough good stuff that I'll go to heaven when I die. In fact, we often say things like that, don't we? We say, my main goal in life is to go to heaven when I die. I've said that, probably a lot of you have said that, that we have as our main goal in life to go to heaven when we die. Now, don't get me wrong, I do want to go to heaven, don't you? I want to be there, I want to be with Jesus forever. But thinking that the relationship between our good works and our salvation is that we do all of these good works hoping that we've done enough to maybe outweigh the bad things that we've done and earn or merit a place in heaven is a flawed way of thinking. Let me, let's discuss some of the problems with that. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't do that. I don't think of it that way. I don't think of heaven that way or salvation that way. Let's think about a few things. So here's some of the problems with that typical way of thinking. Number one, it leaves people content with a minimum amount of service. There we go. Number one, it leaves people content with a minimum amount, a minimum amount of service and repentance. Think about that for a second. Think about the way that we kind of talk about some of the good works in our life, right? We talk about evangelism. We all know that's a good thing to do, right? Tell other people about Jesus. But sometimes we hear questions like, well, yeah, but, but Wes, do I have to do that, right? Is that necessary? Do I have to tell somebody about Jesus? Do I have to be evangelistic in order to go to heaven? 
It's, it's revealing that that's the way we think about salvation, isn't it? We think about our good works as I'm going to do all of the things that I have to do. And then maybe there's some other stuff that's just extra credit, right? I don't know about you, but when I was in school and the teacher said, you know, here's your assignment and here's some other stuff you can work on. And we'd say, well, what, do we have to do that stuff? And she said, well, you don't have to. It's, it's extra credit. It's bonus points. And I think, well, I'm not going to do that then, right? I don't have to do it, so I'm not going to do it, right? And when we filter everything through that question and through that goal and that mindset that I'm trying to make it to heaven and I want to live this life and do these things in order to get to heaven, then we look at some of the good works and we say, well, you know, Wes, Wednesday night Bible class, I got to do that to go to heaven? I mean, uh, evangelism, Sunday nights. And so we start to ask those kind of questions. The same is true with repentance, isn't it? And we look at some of the things in our life and we say, well, I know that's not good and it might even be a little bit bad, but are you telling me I'm going to go to hell if I do that? And we, we are satisfied and content and complacent with a minimum amount of service and repentance when we think that that's the relationship between good works and salvation. Number two... We have an obedience, but it's an obedience of compulsion, right? But we just read in 2 Corinthians that God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver, right? God doesn't want us to give out of compulsion, out reluctantly. I mean, you know how that is as a parent, right? This morning I bragged on Malachi at first service, my oldest son. I'll brag on him again because I was really impressed. Last night he said, Dad, I want to go with you to early service. And he came with me to say, he's had to listen to this sermon twice now, you know? But he wanted to do it and it was his idea. Uh, you know, it's so difficult when, when as a parent, you, you have to make your kid do something, right? And they do it, but they're kicking and they're screaming and they don't want to go. That's not the kind of obedience that Jesus wants to inspire in us. Is an obedience of compulsion. But when we think of everything in those terms that I'm trying to do enough good things that I make it to heaven when I die, then we do the good stuff and we say, well, I don't want to do this, but I guess I have to do it. It's the wrong way of thinking about everything. Number three, it leaves many in fear, asking, what if I haven't done enough? I could tell you story after story after story, and I'd like to think that no Christian person thinks like this, but I could tell you so many stories. I have a a dear friend who, his dad lived a life of unbelief his entire life, and right before he died, He was baptized in Christ in good faith. He trusted in Jesus and was baptized. And then he passed away. And my friend said, you know, I'm really glad my dad was baptized, but I just don't know if he's going to go to heaven because he really didn't have time to do a lot of good stuff after he became a Christian. And I thought, brother, you don't understand. You don't understand baptism or salvation or grace or even what the relationship is between works and salvation. Just... The last couple of weeks, I got an email from a sister in Christ, and and she wrote to me asking me, Wes, you know, I get paid on a monthly basis, and, you know, do I have to write five checks a month to the church, one every week, or can I just write one check to the church? And, you know, so she was discussing those things, good questions, and we talked about it, but at the end of her email, she said something like, I just want to do the right thing so that in order to make sure I go to heaven when I die. How many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, that that's how we tend to think about things? That we're doing good stuff, but we're doing it in order to make sure that we secure for ourselves 
a place in heaven when we die. Think about this, number four, that it is selfishly motivated. Isn't that interesting? That when we do good stuff in order to earn for ourselves a place in heaven, that we're really not doing it for the person we're doing it for, or we say we're doing it for, we're not even doing it for God, we're doing it for ourselves. We're selfishly motivated. I'm giving to you, but I'm just giving to you so that I can make sure that I go to heaven when I die. Is that why we put a check in the plate? Is that why we show up for worship? Is that why we practice hospitality? Is that why we do the good that we do? Is that why we feed the hungry and clothe the the, the naked? Is that why we put roofs over people's heads? In order to make sure that we're good enough to go to heaven when we die. Now, it's easy to just write that off and say, no, Wes, that's not me. That's not how I think of things. But I think if we'll examine our heart and we'll look real close, that most of us, if we're honest, have or continue to struggle with this in one way or the other. But the worst problem of this is that, number five, it's not even the gospel. This is not Christianity. This is not the right relationship between good works and salvation. Now, you're going to ask me, well, Wes, does that mean we don't have to work? Does that mean we don't have to do good stuff? Does that mean we don't have to be busy and work hard? No. By no means does it mean that. But it means the reason why we work. The reason why we work hard, the reason why we do better is different than this. It's different than trying to work our way to get to heaven. So we work hard, but we work hard for a different reason. And that's what I want us to expose and think about this morning is why do we work hard or why, if we're not working, should we, as Christians, work hard? In ancient cultures, one of the worst things that you could be as far as your society was concerned, or as far as anybody was concerned, one of the worst things you could be was ungrateful. Ungrateful for the gifts that had been bestowed upon you. You see, if you were just the average guy or gal in the ancient world, the first century world, well, you could buy and sell the things that you needed for everyday life. I mean, your food and your clothes and those kind of things. But if you needed anything above that, anything above the normal things, if you needed to become a citizen of a city or, or a nation, if you needed land or something like that, you couldn't, you couldn't earn it. You couldn't work hard enough to buy it. That wasn't even possible for the average person. And so it had to be bestowed upon them. It had to be gifted upon them by a patron, by a benefactor. And so the benefactor would find someone to bestow his favor upon. And that word favor, the Greek word there is charis. We translate it as grace. You see, when somebody bestowed favor or charis or grace upon someone, the expectation was that that person upon whom grace has been shown would show gratitude in return. They would be forever indebted to be grateful to the benefactor who had bestowed grace upon them. And so they would be honor-bound, duty-bound to spread the fame of that person, their benefactor, their patron, to everybody who would listen. And to say, this guy, he's fantastic, he's phenomenal, he's awesome, he gave me what I didn't deserve, he blessed me, he, he gave me this X, Y, and Z, whatever it was. And so they would have this ongoing relationship where the benefactor would continue to bless the recipient and the recipient would continue to show gratitude. Not only would he praise his benefactor, his patron, 
but he would also show faithful loyalty to his patron. And the worst thing that a person could possibly do, the worst thing you could do in that society was to be ungrateful. To have somebody take gifts and give it to somebody that was somebody that was high up, give it to somebody that was at the bottom and bless them and show them charis, show them favor, and for them to return that grace with ingratitude was the worst thing a person could do. In fact, we have an English word for that, don't we? Ingratitude, and a person who shows ingratitude is an ingrate, right? An ingrate. You see, even our English word, look at the screen, grace and gratitude. You see how at the very root of the word gratitude is grace? We used to say that when you said a prayer of thanksgiving and you thanked God for your food, you were saying grace, right? You were thanking God for the grace that he showed you. You can't separate those two ideas, grace and gratitude. In fact, in Spanish, when you say thank you, it is gracias, right? You see grace right there. Because that is the response to grace. When somebody shows you grace, you show undying, lifelong gratitude that praises the name of the one who gave you grace and also is faithfully loyal until your very last breath. And a person who doesn't do that is an ingrate. Now, I was thinking about that, and in our culture, we really don't think of ingratitude as that great of a vice, do we? I mean, somebody that, you know, there's some bad things in the world, and bad people in the world, but we really wouldn't think of an ungrateful person as being that bad, right? Because we've allowed this idea of ingratitude to get right down into our hearts. Because we, in our culture, we truly believe that if we have something, we earned it, Right? We deserved it, right? I worked hard. That's mine. It belongs to me. If I have land or I have money or I have stuff, it belongs to me because I bought it. It's mine, right? There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But we don't want to have a debt of gratitude over us, do we? And so if somebody does something nice for us, we feel like, well, you know, I'll do something nice for them and then we'll be even, right? I don't want them to feel like they have something over on me, right? You see, that that's in our heart, It's in your heart and my heart. We don't want to feel like we have a debt of gratitude to somebody. That is the heart and the root of our rebellion against God. Look at Romans chapter 1. Before we get to Ephesians and the text there, look at Romans 1, starting in verse 21. I want us to see that ingratitude is where rebellion comes from. And so Paul in Romans 1 is describing the Gentile world and why the Gentiles are the way the Gentiles are, why they are so debased, why they are so sinful, why they are so rebellious. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, We all were created by God, right? We're given flesh and and blood and bones and air to breathe. And everything that we have was a gift. It was a charis. It was favor from God. And he gave it to us. We having done nothing to deserve it, right? He just blessed us with favor. And yet we didn't see fit to honor him as God or give thanks to him. But we became futile. And we said, 
you know, I just don't really want to be loyal to you. I just kind of want to do my own thing and I want to follow my own pleasures and my passions and I don't necessarily want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do what feels good, right? I want to do what gives me pleasure. And you and I have become ingrates, right? And that's who we are by our nature, not because we didn't have a choice in it, but because that's by our very practice and our habit and the way that we have lived our lives have become ungrateful and our ingratitude has led to rebellion. So look at Ephesians chapter 2 with that in mind. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. So Paul there, talking to the Christians, talking about their life before Jesus, before Christ, same idea in Romans chapter 1, says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead. We were dead because we walked in sins and trespasses. We were dead because we followed the worldly generation. We were dead because we followed the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, that is Satan. We are dead because we lived in the passions of our flesh. We were dead because we carried out the desires of our mind and body. We were dead because we were by nature or by our practice a child of wrath. We all were, right? That's the bad news. And we say, well, you know, I don't know that I was that bad, Wes. I don't know if I was all that bad. But listen, even our good stuff that we did, even our good deeds, we didn't do it because we were showing gratitude to God, our Creator. We did it because it felt good, right? I mean, generosity feels good sometimes, doesn't it? And sometimes we do it selfishly. We had become ungrateful and rebellious. And then verse 4, and this is the best. Two words, awesome words, but God. This is who you were, this is what you did, this is what you were deserving of, wrath, but God. But God being rich in mercy. Now, some of y'all don't believe that. Some of us grew up not believing that. Some of us grew up believing that God wasn't rich in mercy. That God wasn't exuding mercy. Some of us grew up believing that God had a lightning bolt and he just couldn't wait for somebody to step out of line and break the rules so he could throw down the lightning bolts at them. But if that were the case, then all of us would be gone, right? We were all ungrateful and rebellious, but God, because he was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were ingrates, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He showed us favor. He gave us blessings. He he said, I'm going to send my son so that he can die and whoever would accept him and worship him and follow him and become his disciples, they're going to be my people. I know they haven't been grateful. I know they've been rebellious. I know they're not deserving, but I am rich in mercy. And I have a great love with which I love them. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? By grace we have been saved. He shows us favor that we don't deserve. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Now, raised us up, right? We read we were dead and then we were made alive. We were buried and we were raised up. That's what happens at baptism, isn't it? 
At baptism, we say, I'm done living for me. I'm done selfishly following what feels good. And from this moment on, I'm going to lose my life in Jesus because I'm dead and I want to be raised up with Jesus. And so we're raised up. And then it says that he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? He did what? He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, you, what you mean? He will seat us. That's not what it says. It says that he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is a sense in which we already have a seat with Jesus at the banquet table. Why? Because he is rich in mercy because he has a love with which he loves us, because by grace he has shown us favor and blessings. And he's given us a seat with him in the heavenly places. And think about the way we talk. We say, well, my main goal in life is to get to heaven when I die. My main goal in life is to make it to heaven. Well, don't you know that if you're faithful in Christ Jesus, you already have a seat there. Get another goal, right? Move on. Get a better goal. Move on beyond that. I want to go to heaven. Absolutely I do. But He's already given you heaven if you're faithful in Christ Jesus. Don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying once you're saved, you're always saved. But he's saying that in Christ Jesus, this is who you are and what you have. You can't earn it. That's what grace is. It's a favor that you can't earn. But you do owe a debt of gratitude for. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see that? He doesn't just want to save us. He wants to bring us to himself and shower us for the coming ages. He wants to continually, over and over and over again, for all eternity, bless us with his favor, with his grace with His kindness. He's got a seat for us and He wants us to be there with Him and be showered with blessings for all eternity. In spite of our earlier rebellion, in spite of our earlier ingratitude, God wants to be our eternal benefactor. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What do you do with a gift? You receive it or you reject it, period, right? You you and I are the, the nobodies, right? And God is the king and he decides to show favor to us. And his favor to us begins with him forgiving our sins, saving our lives. Isn't it interesting? If you save somebody's life, how would you feel about that person continuing to go on trying to save their own life, right? You saved them, and now their job is to show you what? Gratitude for the favor that you showed them. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Not the result of our good works, right? So that's not the relationship between salvation and good works. Salvation is not the result of good works. So does that mean we don't have to work? Does that mean we don't have to do anything? No, of course not. That's contrary to what's said. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship. We are His masterpiece. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. That's what you were saved to do. Salvation is not the result of good works. Good works are the result of salvation. Salvation is not the result of good works. Good works are the result of salvation. We work for God. We do good things. We praise His name and we faithfully serve Him and we're loyal to Him and He has our undying allegiance. Why? Because we are grateful for His grace. That's why we work so hard. That's why we praise so loud. That's why we want to tell everyone who will listen and maybe even the people that won't listen why our God is God and how good He is. It's because of our gratitude for His grace. See, the world is working hard. They're working hard to save themselves, to be good enough, to do enough good to outweigh their bad. And it doesn't work that way. Good works don't erase sin. The only thing that erases sin is blood. So the world's efforts to be good enough is in vain. But it's left many of them complacent, thinking, I'm pretty good. I'm good enough. And it's left others in fear, but it's left all of them doing what they're doing for selfish reasons. Let's be a group of people that don't work in order to be saved, but we work because we are saved. Isn't that what this verse, what this passage should elicit from us is gratitude? Not, not fear, but gratitude. Saying, thank you, God, that you are rich in mercy. Thank you, God, for the love with which you've loved us. Thank you for seating us with you in the heavenly places. Thank you for wanting to show us your riches and your grace for all eternity. We, ro- we proclaim his name to the nations because of our gratitude. We assemble to worship out of gratitude. We give generously out of gratitude. We serve one another's needs out of gratitude. We help the poor out of gratitude. I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as He is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love Cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Do we need to work hard? Absolutely we need to work hard. In order to be good enough to go to heaven? No. Never. In order to show him gratitude because he paid the price. He was good enough. He went to the cross and We are saved by grace through faith for good works. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that hasn't yet died to themselves, died to sin, died to ingratitude, died to selfishness, but you're ready. You're ready to be done with those things and to be buried, to lose your life in Jesus and to be raised up to walk a life Walk in a life, walk in a way of good works, of zeal and enthusiasm for doing the good things and the right things, not to, in order to be good enough to earn your salvation, but because you're confident that He has given you salvation in Christ Jesus.
If you haven't been buried with Christ in baptism, what are you waiting for? If you just need prayers or encouragement, there's a prayer room in the back. The elders would love to pray with you. You can come down here. Let us show you that we love you. And we're in this together. Let's be a community of people who are working hard for the Lord, not in order to be saved, but because of our gratitude that we are saved. If we can help you, won't you come forward as we stand and sing?